darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in Sun Tzu's The Art of War, which, as many of you probably will know, is one of the most ancient uh, wartime manuals, setting out the rules of engagement for just wars. What is a just war? How are wars to be fought and how are victories to be achieved in that great manual written so long ago? Uh, Sun Tzu says this, uh, speaking about the essentials of military victory. He says, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Very interesting observation. If you know yourself and the enemy, you will endure and you will essentially stand. If you know yourself but not the enemy, you may have a, a victory here or there, but you will fall. And if you know neither, you will fall in every battle. And so apropos is that statement as we consider what Paul is doing as he brings this letter to a close. And as I already noted, Paul says at the very beginning of this book that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. God has brought us into a spiritual realm when he delivers us from the grip of the evil one, when he redeems us, when he draws us, when he brings us to Christ, when he raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life, he has brought us into a spiritual realm. Once we were in a natural realm, Paul will say in Ephesians 2 that at one time we were under the sway of the evil one, that we walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil. But now God has raised us up in Christ. He's seated us in the heavenly places. And we have seen as we have gone through this letter that there are applications of those spiritual blessings as God has, has given us all those benefits in Christ, all those saving graces, that there are applications in the church, in the marriage, in the home, in our relations, masters to servants, in the workplace. The gospel works everywhere and is meant to work in every circumstance. And we saw last week that right there, in between that statement in chapter 1, verse 3, and what Paul says here, we realize that there is conflict in all of those areas. That there is a spiritual battle that believers are constantly engaged in, in the church, 
in the marriage, in the home, in our relations, in our vocations. There is conflict in this life. In fact, I would argue this morning that the Christian life is all conflict. Um, Paul is going to set out for here, for us here, a word that has implication for every day of our lives. Especially, if I can say this, when we don't recognize that we are facing conflict. Um, I heard Sinclair Ferguson say once that he had done numerous conferences and on one occasion was invited to do one on conflict management among members of a church. And as he did his talks and listened to others, he said, I just couldn't help thinking how many times, if any, people at this big major conference had realized that behind the human-to-human conflicts there is a greater battle raging. And that with Satan, with Satan there is no conflict management. That he is always raging. He is always seeking to destroy believers. Paul is saying that. He's saying that to these believers. The last thing that he says, notice this, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. Now, Paul is going to do three things here, and we're going to look especially at verses 10 through 17 uh, this morning, if we can. Verses 10 to 17, he's going to tell us, number one, know the battle. Number two, know the enemy. And number three, know the weapons. Know the battle, know the enemy, and know the weapons. Uh, Very interesting, before we look at the battle in any detail, our Reformed forebearers, the Puritans, the English Puritans, wrote enormous volumes on spiritual warfare. We don't hear a lot about it today. Um, I tallied up the number of pages in um, the many volumes I have of different Puritans. William Gurnall wrote The Christian in Complete Armor. Thomas Brooks wrote Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Richard Gilpin wrote Demologia Sacra. There were many of these very specific manuals that taught believers how to make warfare, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages. And yet, Thomas Brooks in The Christian in Complete Armor summarizes everything you need to know about the battle. Listen to this. He says in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, you need to know Christ, the Scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices. You need to know Christ, the Scriptures, your own heart, and Satan's devices. He says these are the four prime things that should be most studied and searched. If anyone casts these off, they cannot be safe here or happy hereafter. Now, it does open the question for us, what is the nature of this battle? Notice that Paul tells us there in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The very first thing he says is the warfare that we're engaged in. And don't miss this because many believers who get caught up in the culture wars, maybe even some of you here, oftentimes fail to understand our battle is not with flesh and blood. Paul says but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. Here's the, here's the word, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a, there's a spiritual realm in which our lives are taking place, and we may be unaware of it so often. We may go through our day not recognizing that we are engaged in a spiritual battle, but at every turn, 
there are, there are spiritual forces that are at work against us in God's plan of redemption. Um, Abraham Kuyper, this is a great quote. Listen to this. Abraham Kuyper, reflecting on the reality of what we are engaged in every second of our lives. Listen to this. Abraham, uh, Abraham Kuyper says, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. I don't know if you've watched many of the World War II or World War I documentaries, the footage, how intense, how awful those wars were. This is vastly more fierce. This is, this is heaven and hell. This is life and death. And it's sweeping, as Kuiper says, it's sweeping everything within its range. You know, there are Christians who act like they're strong. Um, Paul leads with the idea that we're not strong. He says, be strong in the Lord. The battle that we're engaged in can only be fought if we're strong in the Lord. You know, there are believers, when I hear them speak and what they say, it becomes very evident that they're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in their intellect. They're trusting in what they think they know, what they think they can do. You know, if, if King David had remembered this, he wouldn't have fallen. And I don't know all of you, but I know that you're no King David. I'm not trying to offend you. If King David had remembered that, he wouldn't have fallen. If Peter had remembered this, he wouldn't have fallen. If I would remember this, I wouldn't fall. Now, it's very interesting. Paul doesn't say, be strong, go out there, fight, be a man. He says, be strong in the Lord. He, he first says in this battle, the nature of the battle is that I in myself am not strong enough. Now, it's interesting. Paul doesn't say, and you have to listen carefully, the opposite error is to say, well, I'm just really weak. I'm so weak. You know, I don't even know if the Lord hears me because I'm so weak. There are Christians that pride themselves on saying, I'm just so weak. We are to recognize our weakness in such a way that it drives us to the Lord to say, Lord, make me strong in your strength. Because I cannot fight this battle unless you give me your strength. That's Paul's whole emphasis here. Notice the whole, the whole um, end goal of what he's saying. The denouement of what he's moving to. Notice the end of verse 13. He says, stand firm. And then he says, stand, therefore. He will say, so that you can stand in the evil day. What is the evil day? What is the evil day? The evil day is not the day of judgment. The evil day is that day when you are taken unaware in the battle. When in a moment of passion... Opportunity meets fantasy, or in a moment of greed, you do something you never did before and you cross a line. That's the evil day. That's the evil day. The apostle is saying, I want you to be strong in the Lord. I want you to know that the strength of the Lord Jesus is the only thing that is going to sustain you through this battle. Now, the very simple reason for that is because Christ has already won the battle for his people. Um, the whole point of what Paul's saying here has as its background Genesis 3.15 and 
the conflict between Christ and the evil one, and the two seeds, and Jesus came, and he, he, he bound the strong man. He bound the evil one. He came to crush the head of the serpent. The, the end goal of the battle is not uncertain. It's already been secured. The victory has already been secured. So much so that Paul can say, even when you suffer, even when you fail, even when you falter, if you are in Christ, if you are going to Christ, if you are returning to Christ, Paul can say, if you are in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Have you ever thought of that? It's impossible to be more than a conqueror. Either you're a conqueror or you're not. Paul says, so secures the victory in Jesus that you are already more than a conqueror, and the Lord wants you to come to him for strength in the battle. He wants you to rely on him for strength in the battle. You know, I, I am very slow to criticize historic creeds or confessions, but a number of years ago I was thinking, you know, if, if I could go back in time and they would never listen to me anyway, but tell the authors of the Apostles' Creed, whoever they were, because we don't know, hey guys, consider putting something like this in. I believe in principalities and powers, spiritual forces of evil, and the heavenly places with whom we wrestle. I believe that Christ has conquered them by his death on the cross. I believe that I need the armor of God to overcome them in my warfare with them throughout the time of my sojourn here. Because in our day, and one of the sad things about our day, is that churches that sort of do science fiction theology love to talk about present darkness and write really bad Christian fiction about it. I'm sorry if you've read that, not naming any names. And the churches that have the most truth oftentimes become very rationalistic, and we can't do that. We are engaged in a battle. And Every believer together is called to fight in this battle. Now, I want us to consider here the enemy. Um, we need to know the enemy. Notice that the apostle does tell us there back in chapter 12 that it is principalities and powers. It is spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Back in chapter 2, he, he calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. That there is an enemy who is so malicious that hates Christ so much and hates you if you're in Christ, that he has one goal together with that, that legion of fallen angels, and that is to destroy any believer that he can. You know, when Jesus gives warnings in the Gospels, there's one place, I believe it's Matthew 24, where he says that false teachers and false Christ are going to arise and they're going to try to lead away many, and he says to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, it is impossible, we know that. But what, what Jesus is doing is giving us an insight into the, the modus operandi of the evil one, that his goal is to destroy, to cut off the legs of every single man, woman, boy, and girl that professes faith in Christ. That's why there's conflict in homes. That's why there's conflicts in the church. That's why. And behind those conflicts, we oftentimes don't realize that the evil one is working or some lesser spiritual force with him is working. You know, Simon Peter didn't understand this when Jesus told him, 
that I have to go. I have to suffer, Matthew 16. I have to be handed over. I have to be crucified. Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He recognized that behind Peter, unknowingly, Peter didn't recognize that behind that conflict, the evil one was trying to hurt and destroy the church. And that's always the way the evil one works. He works behind the scenes, but he works actively. Um, He's had a, a lot longer than you to perfect his tactics. Um, I do want us to consider this morning a few things scripture teaches us about the enemy. Um, The Bible calls the evil one Satan, the great serpent of old, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies. Jesus calls him a murderer and liar. The Bible calls him our adversary, and Peter calls him a roaring lion. Now, those descriptions are there so that we understand something of his character. He is cunning, he is vicious, he is malicious, he is deceitful, and he uses all of his own resources in trying to deceive God's people and to cause them to fall. Um, We see this, don't we, when he comes to attack our first parents in the garden, and how subtle, how subtle he comes, and You know, the very first thing he does, and and don't miss this, the very first thing that Satan seeks to do is to undermine the truthfulness of God's word. The very first question he asks Eve is, did God really say? You know, I've noticed in, in the deconstruction movement that's happened, which is really an apostasy movement of people turning away from Christ because they want to find fault. There's always plenty of fault. We're all sinners. Plenty of fault in sinners and churches. But, but turning away from Christ, and when I read the things they, they write, the one thing that is so glaringly obvious is that they have succumbed to that great deceit that they can question the word of God. Did God really say this? Did God really say there's such a thing as hell? Did God really say that if anyone's not in Christ, he's going to perish forever? Did God really say that Jesus is the only way to God? So that he seeks to undermine the truthfulness of God's word, the warnings, the promises, the totality of it. And and he is driven in doing that. He is driven by several things. I want to talk about those. Number one, he is driven by his hatred and hostility. We've seen that already. He hates Christ. He can't get to Christ. He comes after those who are united to Christ. Number two, he is driven by power. He is far more powerful than you and me. He is far more subtle than you and me. Um, This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 about temptations, if anyone thinks he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. We are very weak that this is not a battle against flesh and blood. If it was, we could find some kind of conflict resolution. This This is a force that is so much more powerful, so much so Paul says that the whole world lies under his sway. All of the philosophies, all of the false religions, all of the false teaching. By the way, I remembered his a young Christian, somebody saying to me once, well, if the Bible's true, why are there so many other religions? Because there's a devil. I mean, it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. And, and, and all of the lies and all of the deceit and all of the influence he has on nations and on peoples. You know, it's shocking. I, I wrote a little book 
a field guide on false teaching for Ligonier a couple years back, and, and it's, it's overwhelming. Billions, billions of people are Muslims. Billions of people are Hindus. And, and people say, well, I mean, God wouldn't send somebody to hell if they don't know Christ. Yes, he will. Yes, God will send you to hell if you don't know Christ. I need to say that a whole lot more. Um, Satan is very powerful. He's very deceptive. He's cruel. There's no kindness in Satan. There's no common grace in the evil one. He's never, he's never taken Christmas off from the battle to give you a little break. There's, there's no, there's only cruelty. There's only hatred. He hates you because he hates Christ. The world hates us because of the evil one and because the world hates Christ. Um, the evil one loves to stir up one believer against another out of his cruelty. One of the most cruel things he could do. And then, as I've noted already, there is a diligence. When Peter speaks about Satan and the ways in which he works and in the battle, the enemy, uh, the enemy tactics that he employs, there is an unrelenting diligence. Even though the scriptures say, resist the devil and he'll flee from you, Peter says he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and, and Job, the book of Job, tells us that he goes to and fro throughout the earth. Now, I don't think that we're so important that we get a special assignment from Satan. I think a JV demon could take any of us out. This is the whole point of screw tape letters. This is a junior varsity, middle school demon. Take any one of us out. And if we don't think so, we're foolish. And yet, our enemy is real. And he will not stop until he causes others to fall. Um... I want to encourage us as a congregation as we think about these things that as individuals we would take seriously that, that we are engaged in this battle and that it's real and that we would pray that God would make us aware of it and that we would trust in him to guide us through it. Remember, the goal is to stand. Now Paul is probably reflecting, remember Paul's writing this from prison and he's surrounded by Roman guards and those that serve in the Roman armies. He's aware of how the battles are fought. He's going to be aware of the warfare and the weapons of the warfare because he's going to tell us about that. And no doubt he is, he is reflecting here on what was the goal in the battle. There was one goal. There was one goal, to stand. To stand, to keep standing. That's, that's what the Lord is saying to his people in this passage. He's saying, I want you to be able to stand in the evil day. We get such a beautiful picture of this in the life of Joseph. If there's anyone other than our Lord Jesus in Scripture that withstood temptation, so powerful temptation, it was Joseph when Potiphar's wife said, lay with me, and, and he said, how can, I, how can I sin against the Lord? How can I do this thing? What a, what a model of what it is to stand. Now, the reality is, Every one of us is probably wounded in the battle. All of us have fallen more than we would like to admit. Some have been defeated in this battle. Every Christian has been wounded at some time in this battle. 
Um, and yet we've got to pray that the Lord gives us vigilance to know the battle, to know the enemy, to recognize his schemes. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3 about um, warning about false gospels, because that's such a, a big way that Satan tries to lead aside is through false teaching and false gospels. And, and, and he says, I fear lest somehow your minds be, be led astray from the simplicity of Christ to another gospel as Eve was deceived by the evil one. And he says, but we are not ignorant of his devices. When Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about the man who had sinned so grievously, sexual sin, and had been excommunicated and then repented and came back into the church, and the people didn't want to receive him back. They wanted to censor him. They were self-righteous, and Paul says, receive him back, lest Satan get a foothold. We are not ignorant of his devices. And Satan has a thousand devices that as we read scripture, we see more and more clearly in God's word, the ways in which he works so that we will not fall time and time and time and time again. Now, the good news, and we'll close with this briefly, is that God has given us everything that we need in Christ. Notice the outset. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord. I think that's a reference to Christ. Be strong in the Lord. And then Notice as he begins to talk about the weapons of warfare. Notice verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. This is God's armor. That means it can be trusted. How do I know that it can be trusted? Because Isaiah tells us that the Lord Jesus wore this armor in his conflict with the evil one. Um. I want to read to you what William Gurnall, the Puritan, says in The Christian in Complete Armor. He says, what is this armor? He says, by armor is meant Christ. Isaiah talks about this, that, that the Messiah is going to come and, and the Spirit of the Lord is going to be on him. And he's going to be girded with the breastplate of righteousness. And, and he's going to have uh, his feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and all of those other armor pieces that Jesus wore them and wore them perfectly. And, and Gurnall says, by the armor, first we are meant to understand Christ. It is the armor of Christ. He says we are to put on the Lord Jesus. Listen to this. He says in Romans 13, we're told, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Gurnall says this implies that till Christ is put on, the creature is unarmed. Until Christ is put on, the creature is unarmed. He says it is not a man's morality. Oh, listen carefully. It's not a man's morality or philosophical virtues that will repel a temptation set with a full charge from Satan's cannon. He says the graces of Christ are armor. And the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the rest. He says, here we are bid to put on the new man. Now, by doing that, we have to go into the scriptures. And we have to understand what each of these pieces of the armor are. I want to briefly just look at them this morning as we consider this. 
Uh, the first that Paul tells us about, notice in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth. Um, the belt of truth belongs to the one who said, I am the truth. Um, Jesus didn't just speak truth. He said, I am the truth. God is a God of truth, and in him there is no fal falsehood. Jesus is truth incarnate. Jesus came into a world of lies to deliver a people to make them love the truth. And so we are to gird our minds with the truth of, of Christ. And, and in order to do that, we have to be in the scriptures. You know, Jesus gird his mind with scripture when he was tempted by the evil one in the wilderness. In fact, what Jesus did, don't miss this, what Jesus did is he scoured the scriptures to find where God had put in the scriptures just the right word to use against those particular temptations that Satan brings. So much so that he went into the book of Deuteronomy that God gave Israel. And as the last Israel, doing what Israel failed to do, he took up the very verses that needed to be used because he loved truth, sought truth, and made war with truth. He was secure in truth. Now the second thing that Paul says here is that we too are now to take up the breastplate of righteousness. Now... Very simply, the breastplate of righteousness is two things, two parts. One, it is the imputed righteousness of Christ. If you are in Christ, he has given you his perfect righteousness as a record, a legal standing. Satan can never take that away from you. All his accusations fall when we understand that we are righteous in Christ. This is why Luther would send the devil to Christ whenever he felt attacked, because he understood that Christ was his righteousness. But it is also practical righteousness. It is, it is us living out the Christian life, seeking to do those things that are pleasing, as our Lord Jesus did. Those things that are pleasing to God. Number three, Paul charges believers to have their feet shod with the readiness or the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are to be prepared to share the gospel. That's, that's so much a part of the victory. What is, what, what is the battle about? If everyone's engaged in it, what is the point of the battle? So much of it is that Christ is gathering out of Satan's kingdom through our witness. Those who are still enslaved to the evil ones. And as we are engaged in the battle, we are engaged for the souls of others. That's why we're in large part engaged in the battle. So that we would tell others about Christ. So that they would be brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love that they would know Christ as the captain of their salvation. That is so much an essential part of the armor. Um, notice that the apostle says in verse 16, in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith. Now you know that the Roman shields were like doors. And, and what Paul is saying is the more we believe God, the more we trust him, the more we believe all that he has said in his word, the more we cast ourselves in faith on Christ, on the promises, the more we rest in the gospel, the more we actively walk by faith, not by sight, that we are holding up a shield against the wiles of the evil one. Not in a sort of name it, claim it, health, wealth, prosperity, if I just have enough faith, God's going to give me these things, 
but in saying, you, Lord, have already done everything I needed. Give me the faith to trust you when I am standing in the evil day and I feel like I can't stand anymore. Because it's at that moment when you recognize that the evil one is crouching at the door, as it were. When you feel that your legs are going to give out under you, that we so desperately need to take up the shield of faith. And then notice, notice Paul says in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Very simply, um, this is um, us having our minds girded constantly with the truths about what Christ has done for us and, and garnering from our meditations on the cross and on the redemption we have and the resurrection of Christ and all of those precious blessings that are ours in him, that our minds would be protected against the accusations of Satan. Because one of the things that Satan loves to do, because he knows he can never take true believers from Christ, is to paralyze us with accusations. That the, the Apostle John calls him the accuser of the brethren. And whenever we've sinned and we've gone back to Christ and we've, we've confessed and we've, we've asked him to give us repentance and we've cried out for forgiveness, and then, and then we get up from prayer and we still feel condemned, oftentimes it's the evil one making us think, not another time, he won't forgive you. You know, I read this week, very interesting, a wonderful meditation, that oftentimes believers think, if I sin again, I'm going to get to a point where God doesn't forgive me anymore if I go and confess it, because I've just sinned so many times. And, and the individual that wrote this said, look, if, if the Lord Jesus, who is God overall, if he says to his disciples, if your brother sins against you, 70 times 7, forgive him. As many times as he comes back and says, I repent, forgive me, please forgive me. As often as he does, if, if the Lord of glory said that to us in our relationships, then we ought to have the greatest confidence that whenever we go to him, because he's already nailed our sins to the tree, that he forgives us, he pardons us, he cleanses us. That's marvelous. Listen, I need that desperately. That's, it protects our minds, which ultimately protects our hearts. Um, now, the Lord Jesus wore this, this armor differently than us. He, Isaiah says he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. For the Lord Jesus, it was the determination he had to fulfill the work of redemption. Nothing stopped him. Nothing moved him. Your salvation was what consumed his mind and heart. Isn't that amazing? What consumed the mind and heart of Jesus Christ was you and your salvation. And nothing would move him from bringing glory to his Father and salvation to his people. And then, perhaps most significantly, and we come full circle here, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I've already said that we only know about this armor from God's Word. So God's Word is the source of where we find out what it is and how we're to wear it. But yet the most important piece is that we would be wielding the sword of the Spirit. Um, we ought to be in the practice of memorizing God's Word so that it's in us. Uh, it was said of John Bunyan, and you remember all the quotes I've done of the Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan also wrote a book called Holy War, one of the great 
manuals on spiritual warfare by the Puritans. And, but it was said of Bunyan, what, what made Bunyan so great? You've heard this, that if you cut him, he, he bled Bible. Oh, that it could be said of us that if someone cuts us, we bleed Bible. When we're being tempted, we would know where to go in God's word, in our minds, to our hearts, to keep us. When we are tempted, perhaps, with sexual immorality, we ought to know those passages like 1 Corinthians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each one should know how to possess his own body in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. When we are tempted to be driven by greed and covetousness, we ought to remember in Hebrews 13 where it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How do we make war? We do it by wielding the sword of the Spirit. Um, I want to I want to encourage us this morning as we bring this to a close. I, first, I want to encourage you to, to find some of the great, um, the great works on spiritual warfare by the Puritans. Uh, Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, would be a great place to start. Um, we ought to more readily study ourselves, the battle, Christ, the enemy, the weapons, um, we, secondly, I want to charge you to recognize who you are, that in yourself you're not able to stand, that we are weak, and yet the Lord says, be strong in my might. And when you are weak, then you are strong. Um, Paul tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to Christ. That our goal would be on a daily basis, am I taking these thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? Am I standing against the floodwater of falsehood that is a deluge around me constantly, streaming in through the internet, through the television, in the workplace? And then, lastly, let me say this, the application of this needs to start here and then in our homes, because that's where Paul took it. It's not just a battle out there. It's here. Am I engaging with other believers in such a way as to be a blessing to them, not to be used as an instrument of the evil one against them? Am I seeking, as the Apostle Paul says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with one another? Am I seeking to love others and seek their good, or am I seeking my own? Because the evil one's going to love to destroy the unity believers have in Christ, any chance he can get. The gossip, the slander, the grumblings, the phone calls, the backroom conversations, the talking about people instead of going to them. We've got to be on guard against that. And then in our homes, we've seen how Paul applies this. Our husbands seeking to love their wives as Christ loved the church, our wives submitting to their husbands, our parents training their children, our children obeying their parents. In the workplace, how we model what it is to be a Christian. Look, we're, we're going to get wounded. We're going to have times when we are hurt on the battlefield. But our Lord Jesus has secured the victory for us. It's not uncertain. Here in a minute, we're going to sing Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And, 
And Luther's going to note a number of the things we've heard. We can't stand on our own. We're not strong enough. And yet, one little word, one little word from Christ will cause the evil one to fall. Christ has already crushed the head of Satan. What a glorious thought. He may hate us. He may be seeking to devour us, but he's already had his head crushed on the cross. The victory's already won. We, we fight. Let me say this. I don't know who made up this term. I'll leave you with this. We fight from victory, not for victory. We fight, we fight from the victory of Christ, out of what he's done, not wondering if there's going to be victory. And the apostle would say to us this morning, in all that you do, stand in the strength of the Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we have fallen many times and in many ways. We acknowledge that we have not um, recognized that we are in that cosmic battle every second of our lives as we sojourn through this world. We pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that you would uh, give us spiritual illumination to recognize that battle. We do pray that you would also make us much more aware of the enemy and his tactics. And our God, we pray that you would give us grace to be putting on that armor that you have given us in Christ. Help us to put on the Lord Jesus. Would you help us to meditate deeply on the nature of the armor? And would you give us a zeal to be putting it on constantly? Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see the wiles of the evil one, that you would enable us to stand in the evil day. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask you to make us strong in your strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.